But go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many people in many, many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders through the back door. There's a story. There's a story about two boys walking in the neighborhood after a snowstorm, and they're looking for work shoveling snow. And they approach a man who is shoveling the snow out of his own driveway, and they say, Mr., we'll shovel your driveway for $10. And the man looked at the boys and said, Can't you see that I'm shoveling my own driveway? And the boys responded, Sure, that's why we ask you. We get most of our business from people who say that that are about halfway through and say they feel like quitting. I don't know if you've been halfway through a project and felt like quitting. You might have been halfway through a relationship and felt like quitting or halfway through a calling and felt like quitting. But that's usually what happens. You you start out with all kinds of dreams and ambitions and you have high hopes and you have all these anticipations about this new relationship or this new project or this new career, or this new calling. But some way, somewhere halfway through all those hopes and dreams and and anticipations sort of end up on the highway like burned out cars. And now you're in the middle of something and you just feel like I'm quitting. I mean, I've, I'm I've done all I can. I'm. I'm toast. I'm 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 out of here. Whatever you might say. Maybe you've been a person who is in a situation where you're doing the right thing and it just feels like 
No one else is doing the right thing. And you feel isolated or you feel alone. And you're willing to do the right thing, but then you start looking around and say, well, I'm doing the right thing, and I think the right thing has value, but it just doesn't look like it has any impact. And so you just get tired. You just get tired of doing the right thing. And that that tiredness joins with discouragement. And together they cause you to think, well, maybe I've made a mistake. Maybe I shouldn't continue to move forward. Or what difference does this make anyway? You find this kind of discouragement actually pretty frequently among the most faithful people in the Bible. This this tiredness joined with discouragement causing people to think, I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm I'm done. I, I want to be through with this project. It doesn't appear as if it's making much different, much difference. You see this in Moses. You might say Moses is the pastor of CCC. But but it's not Christ Community Church for Moses. It's Complainers Community Church. When you read about the people that Moses has to lead, it's like the, the only people who can get into his congregation are people who have very thin skin and who are seasoned complainers. And those people qualify to get into the group that Moses is leading. And so when you come to Numbers chapter 11, they're complaining about the food of all things. And you'll see that Moses has just said, I've had it. I I started this project and and I don't know if I'm partway in or halfway through, but wherever I am, Lord, I'm done. Moses says to the Lord, Numbers 11, why have you brought me this trouble? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? No. Did I give them birth? No. Why do I have to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, Put me to death right now. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to see that Moses is terribly discouraged. That he's come to what feels like the end of his rope. Elijah felt alone in 1 Kings 19. He he had seen this great work of God, but yet then immediately following his life gets threatened by the queen named Jezebel. And so he runs away from his life, really. First Kings 19, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree and he sat under it and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Please take my life. Job says this. Sometimes I think. Well, my bed will comfort me and sleep will ease my misery. But then you shatter me with terrifying visions. I would rather be strangled. I prefer to die than suffer like this. I hate my life and I don't want to go on living. Jeremiah. I curse the day I was born. 
May no one celebrate the day of my birth. Curse the messenger who told my father, good news, you have a son. I wish I had died my mother's womb. Her body should have been my grave. Why was I ever born? Moses, Elijah, Job, Jeremiah, what do these people have in common? They're the greats of the Old Testament. These are the most prominent, faithful men of the Old Testament. And yet each one of them got to some point where they just wanted their life to end. They wanted to quit. They wanted to say, I'm done. I've had it. I don't want to go even one step further. And of course, if you read church history, you say you hear this same thing. Follow Adoniram Judson. Well, great missionary to uh, a now uh, a country called Myanmar was called Burma. If you remember last week's sermon, when I talked about William Carey, who was the father of modern missionary, modern missions, his his willingness to go to India opened up a floodgate for for men and women to follow in behind him. And one of those people that followed William Carey was Judson. And so Judson came to India as well. And he had some conversations with Carey and Judson in 1813 decided to move to Burma. And it was a very hostile territory such that William Carey told Judson a few few months before he moved to Burma that he wouldn't recommend that Judson and his new wife move to Burma. All the previous missionaries that had tried had died or left. But Judson, at the age of 24, with his 23-year-old wife, decided to move to Burma, and Judson worked there for 38 years, dying at the age of 61. Some estimates are that there are now more than 3,700 churches planted in Myanmar that would trace their history back to Judson's ministry. Now, this sounds great because you don't know the 38 years of Judson's life. He moves there, and several years after moving to Burma, he was unjustly imprisoned and beaten his wife was just had a daughter, and with a year within a year of his release release, he has to bury his wife, and a few months later he has to bury his daughter. And he gets so discouraged that he moves out completely isolated in the jungle. He builds a hut, and beside a hut, he digs his own grave. And then every day when he wakes up, he sits by his grave and he says, I can't wait to die. He said this in his journal, God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. You see, sometimes when you you, you can hear people say something like, well, if you're a Christian, if you really follow after Christ, you're not going to have times like this. Except for when you read the Bible, it's so easy to see. 
That, that you, you get into this relationship with Christ, you then follow after him into a, a career, into a pulpit, into a community, into a marriage, into other relationships. And you get in and you get in with all these high hopes and you get in with these dreams and you get in with these expectations. But then those things just end up being like burned up cars on the side of your life's highway and you get halfway through or some way through and just say, I can't do this anymore. I, I simply can't go forward one more day. And you have prayers or you have thoughts like all of these faithful men had themselves. Most commentators agree that Acts 18 represents one of these kinds of low points for the Apostle Paul. We come to Acts 18 and Paul's in a low point. He's at this discouraging moment himself. And, and I chose this particular passage for our series on courage for a couple of reasons. One is when you're in that dark and lonely time, it takes courage to go forward. It takes real courage to continue just to move forward. You may just be moving so slowly forward, but just to move forward at all takes a lot of courage to stick into those those difficult times and to continue to walk forward. And secondly, as you'll see as we look at this passage, one of the main ways God helps people through dark moments is other people. Other people who will come and be the legs that help the person move forward. And so you may not be in that particular point today, and I'm grateful that you're not. But it may be that you're not in that point, so you can be next to the person who says, I just can't go forward. And you pick that person up for some length of time and say, hey, we're going to make it. We're going to continue to go forward, and you'll see that as we look at the passage. Well, a little background here to Acts chapter 18. Paul's on his second missionary journey. You might remember remember Antioch, the church that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, has sent out Paul and Barnabas. They went on their first missionary journey. And now Paul's going, this time not with Barnabas, but Silas. And they revisit the churches they went to the first time. That's in modern-day Turkey. It's called Asia or Asia Minor. And along the way, they pick up a third teammate for their sort of evangelistic squad, and his name is Timothy. So it's Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they're sort of wandering around in Turkey. And it's very interesting to read. They try to go into different places, and however it works out, the Spirit of the Lord, they say, just prevents us from going until one night, Paul has this vision, and he has a vision of what's called the man from Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is an area in Greece. So he's got this guy from Greece talking to him in this vision, and the guy says, come over here, come and help us. And so Paul interprets it as a sign from the Lord, and now the, the, we're moving out. Remember, the gospel's always moving out. So now we're going from Asia. We've gone, we've gone from the Middle East to Asia. Now we're going into Europe. And so Paul and his companions, they set sail, and the first town they come to is Philippi, which is where we get the book or the letter named Philippians. And Paul and Silas are have some successful meetings, but eventually they're, they're accused of stirring up trouble. They're beaten with rods and they're thrown into prison. 
and eventually they're thrown out of town. So they're, they're thrown out of this coastal city and they just decide, well, we're just going to make, make the next city. And they have these little cities dotted along the coastline of Greece. And the next one they come to is Thessalonica, which is where we get our book, Thessalonians. And they're there and they have three weeks of faithful ministry before an angry mob is sent to attack the team. And they come to where they believe that Paul and Silas are. And they're shouting, hey, give us the men who have come here. And they're turning the whole world upside down. And fortunately, Paul and Silas avoid another beating. But they have to leave the city under the cover of darkness so they won't be beaten. And they go from there to the next town called Berea. And the Bereans really receive Paul and Silas and Timothy, except the angry mob come follow them. And so the angry mob get there a few weeks later and they throw Paul and Silas out of Berea, and Paul then goes to Athens. And in Athens, Paul doesn't face physical persecution. He faces intellectual persecution. This is the, this is the university of the time. This is where the, the elite, the academic elite gather in Athens. And so Paul, in the shadow of the Parthenon, standing in the Acropolis, he makes this tremendous defense of the faith for Christianity. And the, peop- the smartest people on the planet look, in Paul, look at Paul, and you know what they say? You're a bird brain. That's what they say in Greek. You're, you're a, a seed picker is what the word they use. But it's basically saying you're just a bird brain. This man has come to the intellectual hierarchy and he's talking about Jesus Christ. Imagine coming into a university setting and talking about Jesus Christ and what might you hear back? See, it's not that uncommon, is it? You're a bird brain. Nobody believes that anymore. We're past that. We've grown past that. And so Paul has been beaten. He's been thrown out of towns. He comes to another place and he's called a bird brain and he leaves and he goes to Corinth, which is Acts chapter 18. It's a 53 mile hike from Athens to Corinth. And he walks this 53 miles by himself. And Corinth is one of the most important international cities. It's it's a, a conduit for east-west commerce. It's a sailor's town. Lots of people coming and going through Corinth. It's also well known as one of the most sexually perverted cities in the Roman Empire. They have a temple in Corinth to Aphrodite. And so this temple, known for its sexual promiscuity, houses they say from a thousand to ten thousand temple prostitutes and it sits up on a hill and every night pouring out of this temple are the prostitutes that descend on the city and the sailors in the city like a claw. Imagine living in a city like that. That the sexual dysfunction just pours out from every place and this is the place Paul is walking to. And you get a sense of his emotional state when you read about what he says about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I came to you. I came to you, people in Corinth, in weakness, 
fear and trembling. So Paul's making this 53-mile hike to Corinth in weakness, physical weakness, still trying to overcome having been beaten, in fear, and the Greek word there is phobia, and trembling. I'm shaken both from what has happened, but imagine walking into a city like this. He'd be shaken just walking into it. So this is the emotional state the apostle finds himself in. He, he's arguably, arguably the, the strongest, most powerful, most influential missionary in, in church history. And he's walking into this city. And this is the best way he can describe his emotional state. I'm weak. I'm fearful. I'm, I'm trembling. And, and I, have a, I just stopped and thought, I would like to to ask the Apostle Paul a question as he's walking on this road, I would say, what are you doing? That's what I would say. Where are you going? You you obviously have a pretty good history of not very much success here. You've given it your best. Did you see that little road over there, 10 miles to a little fishing village? That's the road I'd be taking. I'd go on down to the little seashore where there's four or five people and I could just rest. You've just been beaten and called a bird brain and now you're walking to Corinth. I mean, you know what Corinth is like. It's not a mystery. It's one of the darkest cities known on the planet. And yet you leave Athens and you intentionally go into that location. And I want to know why. What what causes you to move forward? And, of course, I would just be guessing, but I think he would say, as he said in Galatians, you see, Paul, this is Paul talking to me. You see, I've been crucified with Christ. It's it's no longer I who live. But it's Christ who lives in me. And because Christ came to make the glory of God known. Not just to me, but to all people. Then I go to Corinth. See, see, if I ever disconnect God's blessing to me from God's global purposes. If I ever disconnect God's blessings to me from God's global purposes, then what I'm going to end up with is just a self-saturated Christianity. If you ever disconnect God's blessings to you as an individual, which are real, from God's global purposes, then what you're going to end up with is just self-saturated Christianity. Your Christianity is really just all about you. Maybe this will offer some clarity. A guy named David Platt, who wrote a book called or titled Radical says this, if you were to ask the average Christian to summarize the message of Christianity today, you would likely hear something like, well, God loves me or God loves me enough to send his son, Jesus, to die for me. As wonderful as this sounds, is it biblical? If God loves me is the message of Christianity, then who is the object of Christianity? Me. Unfortunately, this is the version of Christianity that largely prevails in our culture. But it's not biblical. 
The message of biblical Christianity is not God loves me, period, as if we were the object of our own faith. No, the message of Christianity is God loves me so that I might make him his ways, his salvation, his glory, his greatness known among all nations. God is the object of our faith and Christianity centers around him. We are not the end of the gospel. God is. You see, it takes courage to get kicked out of these cities, to get called a bird brain. And when you leave Athens, say, I'm heading for Corinth. It takes courage. I think the Apostle Paul would ask me, well, Paul, it sounds like you have a self-saturated Christianity for even asking that question. I'd say, well, I'm complicated. I'm a complex person. I mean, I would say something to get myself off the hook there. See, I wonder what your view of the gospel is. Is, 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 your, is your gospel self-saturated? Is it really just God loves me, period? Or is it connected to a global purpose that would cause you, even when you're halfway through a difficult project, a difficult relationship, a difficult call, a difficult marriage, to say, you know, ultimately, it's just not about me. And because I know it's not just about me, it's connected to a much larger purpose that many times I cannot see, then I will have the courage to go out of difficult places and to continue to go forward even into places like Corinth. Let me finish with, with two specific ways that God encourages Paul in Corinth. You see it here in the text. First of all, he does it, as I said before, with friendship. You see these names, Aquila and Priscilla, this couple, this couple who had been in Rome, a Christian couple, they had been persecuted and persecuted in such a way that they had to leave Rome and they go to another port city, that's Corinth, and they meet up with Paul. This is a couple that is very smart, very intelligent, very godly, very mature, and they have the same uh, career. They're, they're all tent makers, and so they, they, they bond together. And they have this kind of relationship where Paul says about Priscilla and Aquila in Romans 16, they risk their own necks for my life. So they meet here. They eventually go to Ephesus, which we'll see next week. But here this Paul walks in weak, frail, trembling. And the, and the first people that Paul meets providentially by God's design is this strong, mature couple who can house Paul, who can help Paul, who can get him back on his feet. And then you'll see in verse 5, Silas and Timothy join Paul. I just would like to imagine the emotional release Paul must have felt like when he was in Corinth and, and he opens, here's a knock at the door, he opens the door and it's Timothy and Silas. I don't know if you've ever felt like, like somebody comes in your life and you go, I'm going to make it. You ever have that? Like maybe on the playground, you know, I get to choose first. Well, if I choose him, we're going to win, you know. 
And Paul must have felt some, something of that. Here, here are people who had been in prison. Here are people who had been beaten. Here are the people who, who said, hey, I'm going to continue to go forward. And these two men come in and Paul's going, yes, I can, I can move forward. Because somebody came in and, and got up underneath this great apostle to help him move forward. Ecclesiastes 4 says this, two are better than one. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You see, some people are, by their circumstances or other reasons, they're crippled. And they just can't move forward. They've started at something, but it just hasn't gone like they hoped it would. And they should go forward. They know they should go forward, but they can't. They can't go forward. So they need you. They need some of you to show up at their door and say, you know, for for however long it takes, I'm going to I'm going to be your legs today. I'm going to help you move forward. And so if you're in a healthy spot, I'm so grateful you're in a healthy spot. But you're not just in a healthy spot just for yourself. It's to help other people move forward. Well, that wasn't enough for Paul, though that was helpful. He also had to, had to have a word from the Lord. You'll see this in verse 9 and 10. And, of course, this is a word from God to Paul on his specific place. And we can't appropriate all of it to ourselves, but I think we can we can get something from it. This that would be a word from the Lord, perhaps to you today, if you're discouraged. Do not be afraid. Verse nine, go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I'm with you. No one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are. My people, do not be afraid. It would be a great sermon just to trace how many times that's said through the Bible. Because it, it just always, God has to come to his people. And almost always the first thing he says, just don't be afraid. I know you're afraid. I know you're looking at these things in ways I'm not looking at them. But it's going to cause you to be fearful. Don't be afraid. And then I, and I love this next thing. But go on speaking. Don't. Don't be silent. Do you remember when Paul on dying in, in a Roman prison, he writes a letter back to Timothy. And he says to Timothy, don't be afraid. You have a gift of God and I'm trying to fan it into flame. And Timothy, one of my biggest concerns is that the pressures both inside the church and outside the church are going to cause you to hide your talents. You're going to bury the very skill that God's given you because of the pressure that's coming on you. And I don't want you to do that. So as the apostle, he's dying, he's taking out his blanket and he's trying to fan this little coal that's going down into flame. Well, where do you think Paul learned how to do that? Right here. He was the little coal that was about ready to die. And God Almighty came down and said, Paul, I don't want you to go out. You have a gift. 
You must stand up in the dark places of your culture and you must continue to preach the Word. Don't go silent. Don't hide on me. You're the man. I still have work for you to do. And I'm fanning that into flame. And then Paul becomes this great encourager back to Timothy just a few years later. And so maybe you're in a place that you just want to withdraw. You want to go silent. You want to live in a hut in a jungle by yourself. And I understand wanting to do that. But I'm here on God's behalf. If I could take you out and go, don't go silent. Don't hide whatever it is, the talent that God has given you, no matter what the pressures may be from inside or outside of your world. And why don't you want to hide those talents? This is specifically now for Paul, and I love this. God says this, for I have many people in this city. What an unusual statement. I, I, hey, I've got a lot of people in this city. Well, if I were Paul, I'd say, doesn't look like it. Can't find them. Well, why can't Paul find them? They're not Christians yet. God knows that they're going to be. And he needs somebody to step on the stage. And he's saying, Paul, I, I still got some work for you to do. I, I don't want you to exit just yet. You're the person I'm going to use to bring people into eternity. Now, if you step off the stage, does that mean God's stuck? Oh, darn it. I was going to say to those people that the Apostle Paul quit. No, that's not the case. But do you see what, what God's saying? You're still on the stage. You still have things left to do. And I don't know where you are, but you're here today, so you're still on the stage. And if you're still on the stage, then he still has things for you to do. And he has things for you to do that are going to matter for all of eternity. He's still got work to be done in this city, in, in this congregation, in the world. And I'm trying to fan you into flame, wherever that may be. And take, even if, even if it's just a small step, to take a, a small step forward. Even in a dark place to say, yeah, I don't get it. But I'm going to keep moving forward. You might know somebody who's in that dark place. And your call today is to be the legs for that person. God isn't done. He's not done with you. You're still on the stage. Don't don't go silent. Don't be afraid. H have the courage to move forward or have the courage to move into a life of someone who can't move forward. Let's pray together.